Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we share with you the guest speaker talk from the June 2016 Whitechapel Society meeting from the East End of London, which on this occasion was Mr. William Beadle. Bill is the author of several books, including Jack the Ripper Unmasked, Jack the Ripper Anatomy of a Myth, as well as The Killing of Leon Barron an East End crime for which Steiny Morrison was tried and convicted of in the early years of the 20th century. And as you are about to hear from Mr. Beadle, the guilt or innocence of Morrison is still to this day a debatable subject. So without further ado, allow me to turn it over to Tony Power for the proper introduction of William Beadle. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Welcome to the June 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society, and thanks for coming, everybody. A couple of new faces here, and you're all very, very welcome. We hope you enjoy tonight. Um, I'd also like to welcome everybody who's listening in from the Rippercast podcast, which is terrific, by the way. It's an excellent podcast, if you have a chance to listen to it. And they're recording all of our events and publishing them, so thank you very much for doing that. Um, For those of you that are listening in on the podcast and you want to find out more about the Whitechapel Society please go to the whitechapelsociety.com website and there you'll find information about um, who we are and upcoming speakers um, and also you can visit our shop which is selling a lot of the books that we've published including the excellent Little Book of Jack the Ripper who our current speaker tonight, Bill Beadle has actually written an excellent um, article for but just to give you a flavour particularly for those of you that are listening online of where we are we are in the heart of the east end of London to the south of us we have the iconic Tower Bridge and to the north of us we have Whitechapel High Street and Allgate and overlooking all of us is the shadow of St. Botolph's Church Without, which is known as the Prostitute's Church, because they used to walk around in circles looking for business. And even to this day, ladies and gentlemen, if you are to wander around that area, you may hear this coming at you. Hello, darling. Fancy a Faulkney knee trembler, or would you like your tummy rub for tuppence? You can rub my tummy as often as you like. <laughs> I believe fourpence is the going rate. So you're all very, very welcome. Enjoy tonight's talk, which will be um, an excellent talk from Bill. I mentioned that Bill's written for a couple of our publications, but Bill has also got two books of his own, if not more. One of, and they're both excellent. Um, Anatomy of a Myth. Jack the Ripper, Anatomy of a Myth. And Jack the Ripper, Unmasked. Now, the interesting thing about Jack the Ripper Unmasked is that finally, Bill announces who Jack the Ripper finally is. And the name of the person is... I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to buy the book. I'm not going to tell you. Great book. However, tonight, Bill is taking us a little bit further away from Whitechapel. Six miles to the southwest, in fact, to Clapham Common. And he's going to be talking to us about a guy called Steenie Morrison and what became known as the Clapham Common Murder. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause to Bill Beadle. Thank you. Steenie Morrison. In my book, The Killing of Leon Berron, I wrote that for the connoisseur of crime, the East End is Mecca. Nowhere else in the world is as famous for its murders as this collection of grimy streets and alleys. Five minutes' walk behind us is the Tower of London, where in not 1483 the princes in the Tower disappeared. Fifteen minutes to my right is Wapping, where in 1811 two families were slaughtered with the utmost violence. The Ratcliffe Highway murders are sometimes considered to be the world's first serial killings. A man named John Williams was arrested and on Boxing Day found hanged in his cell. Was he guilty? Possibly, but nobody knows. And on the available evidence, the crimes were committed by two men, not one. On the outer limits of the East End is Bow, and it was between Bow and Hackney in 1864 that the first railway murder took place. Thomas Briggs, a bank executive, was beaten to death... A German immigrant named Franz Müller Müller, was hanged for the crime. Was he guilty? There was a very powerful circumstantial case against him. Equally, he had a very good alibi. North of Wapping 
is St George's in the East and Batty Street, where in 1887, Israel Lipsky allegedly murdered Miriam Angel. We had a very good debate about this uh, in 2011 and ended up split evenly down the middle on Lipsky's guilt or innocence. A year later, the crimes which we have brought us all together. Jack the Ripper. Hackney is our next crime scene. In January 1900, Louise Massey became the first person to be hanged in the 20th century for the murder of her little boy. The evidence seems conclusive, but there are some who think that she was innocent. Which brings us to the final case in this pantheon of East End murder, uh, Steenie Morrison. The facts can be set out quite simply. Shortly after 8am on New Year's Day 1911, a, pro- a patrolling police officer found the dead body of Leon Beron on Clapham Common. Beron was a 47-year-old Polish immigrant who lived in Jubilee Street, Stepney, and ostensibly made his living by renting out slum properties in the East End. He had travelled a long way to die on that New Year's morning. A post-mortem quickly established that Beron had died from being hit over the head with what the pathologist would later describe as a blunt metallic instrument. After death, S-shaped cuts had been carved into both cheeks. The police surgeon, Dr Needham, later testified that he thought it extraordinary that anyone should stop to inflict such wounds. They were symmetrical and appeared to be a sign of something. It was later to be suggested that the S's stood for the Russian word spik, which means false spy. The body had been robbed of whatever money Beron was carrying. It was rumoured that he normally carried up to £30 on him. Uh, that is equivalent to around £1,500 on today's values. And he also wore an impressive gold watch and chain, which had likewise been taken. According to witnesses, Beron had spent the last night of his life, December the 31st, 1910, in a restaurant called The Warsaw in Osborne Street, Whitechapel. The Warsaw is now the City Hotel, where we had our 2011 conference. There was to be much inflammatory comment about the Warsaw and its clientele. All were immigrants who seemed to spend their time sitting around in the restaurant, drinking endless cups of tea and bowls of soup. A lot of the comment was unfair. Most of them were Polish or Russian Jews, genuine asylum seekers fleeing from pogroms instituted by the Tsarist regime. Uh, I should explain that uh, in those days, the Russian Empire uh, also included Poland. And most of, them, most of the uh, inhabitants of the, of the Warsaw had jobs. That they spent their, their spare time in this cafe pointed to sad lives which had been destroyed when they were uprooted from their homeland. Beron spent most of his time in the Warsaw and it was said that during December he had spent much of it in company with a young man who called himself Morris Stein. Beron and Stein had been together on New Year's Eve and had left together at around 11.45pm. Witnesses spoke of them, seeing them wandering around the streets for the next two hours and a cab driver came forward who claimed to have picked up two men on the corner of Sydney Street and the Marlin Road at about 2am and driven them to Lavender Gardens in Clapham, a few minutes' walk from Clapham Common. The cabbie, Edward Heyman, had set his fares down at at about 2.45, which neatly dovetailed with a time of death at around 3am, which was the pathologist's opinion. Police inquiries concentrated on the man known as Morris Stein. They discovered that up to January 1st, he had lodged with a family named Zimmerman at 91 Newark Street, Whitechapel. He had not been seen in the East End since, but was due to return and pick up some laundry uh, from the Zimmermans. The police kept watch on 91. On January 8th, Stein turned up. Detectives followed him to a cafe in Fieldgate Street and sent to Lemon Street Police Station for reinforcements. The man who led them 
was Inspector Frederick Wensley, a living legend in the East End, uh, who was subsequently to rise to Chief Constable of Detectives, a rank since replaced by Deputy Assistant Commissioner. Accompanied by three detectives, Wensley went into the calf and told Stein, I want you. He was taken to Lemon Street and there uh, he was never to be a free man again. Stein was identified by Heyman as one of the men who he had driven to Clapham, also by another cab driver named Alfred Stevens as a man he had driven from Clapham Common to Kennington, and then identified by a third cabbie, Alfred Catlin, as one of two men he had picked up in Kennington and driven to Finsbury Park at about 3.30 on New Year's morning. Finally, there was a woman named Nellie Deach, who claimed to have seen Beron and another man together just before 2am on January the 1st in Whitechapel. She identified Stein as Beron's companion. Morris Stein was now charged with Leon Beron's murder. At this point, I'm leaving the case against Morris Stein to look at three other murders which had occurred two weeks before uh, Beron's murder. There existed in London at this time a small group of Russian and Latvian revolutionaries who called themselves Lismar, meaning flame. They professed to be anarchists, but were actually Bolsheviks, and their remit was to stage robberies to gain funds for Lenin and his Bolsheviks. They weren't too fussy about people getting hurt either. Two years earlier, during a robbery at Tottenham, they had murdered a policeman and a 10-year-old boy, and wounded about 21 other people. On the night of December 16th, 1910, police received information that a robbery was being undertaken at a jeweller's shop in Houndsditch. Nine City of London police officers attended. What followed was a massacre. The police knocked at the door of number 11 exchange buildings, which the criminals were renting, uh, were renting. The definitive book on, on what uh, became known as the Houndsditch murders uh, is written by our own Don Rumbelow, and I have followed Don's account very closely. The door was opened by the group's leader, George Gardstein, but it was another revolutionary, Jacob Peters, who opened fire on the police. Peters was later to become second in command to Felix Zazinski, head of the dreaded Bolshevik uh, murder machine, the Cheka following the Russian Revolution. Peters that night was his own killing machine. Sergeant Bentley was fatally wounded with bullets in the shoulder and neck. Sergeant Tucker was killed by bullets in the heart and hip. A third sergeant, Bryant, was wounded in the chest and a constable named Woodham shot in the leg, uh, this time by Gardstein. Both Bryant and Woodhams were invalided out of the police force. Now the revolutionaries came scuttling from the house. Police Constable Walter Choate came out of the darkness at Gardstein and grappled with him. Gardstein riddled his leg with miles of bullets, but it was Peters coming up behind Choate who pumped two fatal bullets into him. But Gardstein himself was accidentally shot and mortally wounded by another of the revolutionaries, Max Smoller. The events of December 16th led inexorably to what has become known as the Siege of Sydney Street. On January the 3rd, two members of Lisma, Fritz Fars and William Sokoloff, were tracked to a house at number 100 Sydney Street, which they were hiding out in, in a room rented by a female lodger. Police laid siege to the house, but it was quickly apparent that their antique firearms were at a hopeless disadvantage against the revolutionaries' powerful Morza automatic pistols, backed up by a seemingly endless supply of ammunition. Around mid-morning, a detachment of Scots guards arrived and their Lee-Enfield rifles transformed the situation. One o'clock and the house was seen to be on fire. One of the revolutionaries was observed blasting away with two guns. The soldiers sent a howl of bullets screaming through the windows. Sokolov peered out through this maelstrom. A volley of rifle shots ripped his head apart. 
Safars warned him with a barrage of return fire. Then the ceiling collapsed and that was the end of him too. Worse Fars and Sokolov exchanged buildings. The answer is no. They fought to the death because they believed that like the Russian uh, secret police, the London police would torture them anyway. The siege of Sydney Street was over. But was there a connection between Sydney Street and Jubilee Street, between Lisma and Leon Beron? We shall see. But now we return to Morris Steen and the case against him for murdering Beron. Morris Steen was not his name. In fact, 105 years later, we don't know for sure what it was. Favourite is Alexander Petropavlov, born in, and I can't really pronounce this, Korsovsk, Russia, sometime around 1881, which would make him 29 or 30, early in 1911. The name which he mainly used in London was Steeny Morrison. It was that name by which he was tried, convicted and imprisoned for the murder of Leon Baron. Wrongly, in my view. But whatever, but whether we should care about Morrison's misfortune is another matter, because Steeny Morrison is not exactly a sympathetic character. He was a very tall, impressive-looking man, always well-dressed, and in the East End of 1911, with its grim poverty, which stunted men's growth and left them in rags, he stood out. But handsome is, as handsome does. And here, Steeny Morrison was the most stunted of human beings. He lived entirely by crime. In Britain between 1898 and 1910, he was convicted six times and sentenced to a total of 13 years in prison. One sentence, uh, during one sentence, he was given 20 strokes of the cat. He was released for the final time in September 1910 and it was regarded as significant uh, by the police that he worked for a short time for a baker near Clapham Common. His crimes were theft and burglary. There is evidence that Steeny was involved in planning a major robbery in the West End which took place three days after his arrest. It was, in fact, a point in his favour because he was hardly likely to have robbed and killed Beron if he was expecting to make a lot more money from a robbery a short time later. In the meantime, Morrison kept himself <coughs> by indulging in one of the most despicable ways of making money. He became a pimp. His reason for leaving Newark Street on New Year's Day was to commence living with a prostitute named Florrie Dello it, as a minder in Lambeth, South London. Simultaneously, he began to court a respectable Jewish girl named Jane Brodsky, who by common consent was a very attractive young woman. But where Jane saw a good-looking young man whom she thought respectable and would marry her, Steeny saw a good earner from prostituting her. He had already taken her to see a friend of his named Barnet Rotto. Some of you may have heard that name before. It is quite well known in the annals of crime. Um, the appropriately named Mr Rotto was well known to the police as the biggest brothel keeper, white slaver and pimp in London. Morrison's arrest and conviction meant that Jane Brodsky avoided that fate but she may well have sacrificed her respectability anyway, along with her sister Esther's. When the sisters sought to give Steenley a provably false alibi for New Year's Eve. Steenley's trial opened on March the 6th, 1911, and lasted until the 15th. It was the longest murder trial of one man in our history until James M. Ratty, over 50 years later. Arrayed against him was Sir Richard Muir, Arguably the most devastating prosecutor in English history. The previous year he had appeared against Crippin, who when he was told it was Muir who was uh, prosecuting him said, I wish it were anyone but him. I fear the worst. Uh, <laughs> rightly as it turned out. 
appearing for Morrison was Edward Abinger. Andrew Rose, himself a barrister and author of the 1985 book, Steeny, considers that Abinger was temperamentally unsuited to be a lawyer. He could, as the Morrison trial showed, be good at cross-examination, but ruined it by being excitable and remarkably verbose. At one point, during one of his many arguments with the judge, he screeched, even a jury of this intelligence can understand that. Not exactly calculated to win an acquittal. Yet, as Muir himself acknowledged, defended by an advocate of Marshall Hall's stamp, Morrison would have had every chance of acquittal. In effect, Muir was admitting that the case against Morrison was very thin. When I wrote my book, its primary purpose was to show up the weaknesses in the adversarial system of justice, and my work concentrates heavily on the trial. We don't have the time tonight to do a witness-by-witness evaluation, uh, so we will have to just examine the salient points. First, the evidence provided by the proprietor of the Warsaw, Alex Snellwar, two of his waiters, Joe Mintz and Jack Tor, and a man named Henry Hermelin, who testified that throughout December, Morrison had been in the habit of fraternising with Leon Baron, and on the night of December the 31st, they had been continuously in each other's company, and had left together at around 11.45pm. Edward Abinger was his best when cross-examining these witnesses, and it became apparent that little or very little of what they, could, they said could be relied upon. Much the same could be said by about other evidence from Warsaw frequenters, including Jack Tor again. They spoke of seeing Beron and Morrison wandering the streets of the East End between midnight and 2am. Under cross-examination, Tor dissolved into a welter of contradictions. As for the others, Jacob Weisberg and Israel Zaltzman, in my book, I sum their evidence up as being, quote, as zany as a Marx Brothers comedy and about as convincing as Groucho playing Hamlet. What it amounted to is that their memories simply could not be relied upon, and that is putting it kindly. We turn now to the main point of the prosecution's case, uh, case the eyewitness identifications by Nellie Deitch, Edward Heyman, Andrew Stevens and Alfred Castling. Test after test, investigation after investigation has shown up the fallacy of eyewitness identification. Not one has reached a positive conclusion about it and it naturally follows that the same thing applies to describing uh, the descriptions furnished by eyewitnesses. I'll give you one statistic. Of 192 individuals wrongly convicted in the USA and exonerated by DNA, 92% had been convicted on eyewitness identification. Mrs. Deitch knew Beron and had seen him in the company of a man she identified as Morrison in the streets of Whitechapel sometime between 2.15 and 2.35 on New Year's morning. This, of course, totally contradicted Edward Heyman's evidence that Beron and Morrison were in his cab and well on the way to Clapham by then. Moreover, she had uh, met them in the commercial road, walking westwards towards the city. But Haywood's fares were walking eastwards towards Mile End, some distance away. The biggest problem with Deitch, however, was that she had been shown a photo of Morrison at Lemon Street Police Station before picking him out of an identity parade, which because he's totally farcical. A major problem with Edward Heyman's evidence, aside from the contradiction with Deitch's evidence, is he apparently never saw uh, Beron's uh, mortuary photograph. It's a very, very clear uh, mortuary photograph, by the way. The man he picked up wore a general resemblance to Beron, but nothing specific. As for Morrison, Heyman had only gone to the police on January 9th after... I emphasise after seeing his portrait in the newspapers. 
This was after uh, notices appeared in London cab office, offices offering a £1 reward for information, two-thirds of Heyman's weekly wage. Clearly, his ID was worthless, but the Crown needed it in order to have Beron being slain at three o'clock and Morrison hiring Alfred Castlin's cab in Kennington at 3.30. But first, the intermediate cabman, Andrew Stevens, who said that he drove Morrison from Clapham Common to Kennington. According to Stevens, he had picked Morrison up just before 2.30. No. At that time, Morrison was supposedly still on his way to Clapham and Beryl was still very much alive. But Neil Desperandum. Stevens now went back to the police and said, well, I made a mistake. I picked him up about three o'clock. Very convenient. And, of course, it now slotted in with Castlin and Heyman's evidence. Along with Heyman, he had picked Morris out of an identity parade uh, on, I think it was January the 16th. But hold on. He had already seen Morrison's portrait, complete with description, in the evening news of January the 9th. He says so in his statement of January 10th. Again, worthless. Castling's evidence may well have been honestly given, but of the two men he picked up, neither, according to his descriptions, bore much resemblance to Steenie Morrison. Castling had come forward after reading a report that the police were looking for two Frenchmen, which was erroneous. Now, in my book, I sum up Castling's evidence as follows. Here was an extraordinary circumstance. A witness comes forward about two men who have nothing to do with the case. But quite fortuitously, it first turned out to be the murderer and an accomplice. Is there any parallel for this in criminal history? Or were the police fitting a very square peg into a round hole? That is what, that is what Alfred Castling's fears were. Two men who had been out for the night in Kennington and were now returning home to Finsbury Park, which is a long way from Whitechapel. I know, I've walked it. Today, it is extremely unlikely that a case as shallow as this would ever go to court. The defence opened promisingly, with Abinger effectively nailing down the coffin lid on the Warsaw witnesses by placing in evidence a statement by a young man named Sam Rosen, in which Rosen admitted that Jack Tor and Leon Barron's brother Solomon, another habitue of the Warsaw, had attempted to suborn him into giving false evidence against Morris. Rosen's statement also strengthened the implication that the police were bandying Morrison's photo around to potential identification witnesses. Next came Morrison's alibi witnesses, his landlord and landlady at Newick Street, Morris and Annie Zimmerman, and their next-door neighbour, Mrs Esther Gross. Mrs Zimmerman testified that Morrison had returned to 91 Newark Street on January 1st, just as the shops were putting up their shutters, which was between midnight and 12.15. This was confirmed by Mrs Gross, who remembered him passing her as he went into number 91. A few minutes later, she heard the bolt being drawn. Mrs Zimmerman always waited for Morrison to come in before she drew the bolt, which, Mrs Zimmerman confirmed, she had done that night as usual. Morris Zimmerman, her husband, added his confirmations for all these. The bolt is important. A surveyor named John Greaves, called by the defence, testified that the bolt gave off a terrific shrieking and grating noise and took at least 10 seconds to operate. Likewise, the front window could only be opened with considerable difficulty and considerable noise. Ergo, Morrison could not have gone out again without the Zimmermans hearing him. Mrs Zimmerman had next seen Morrison at 9am when she took him a cup of milk and Mrs Gross had seen him washing himself under the tap in the backyard. It was a very sound alibi, and if the trial transcript is anything to go by, Muir, 
did not succeed in putting a dent in it. For good measure, Mrs Zimmerman also testified that, quote, I was taken to Lemon Street Police Station on January the 8th and I was shown Morrison's photograph. This was 24 hours before any identity frays and confirms the other evidence that witnesses were being contaminated by being shown photos. The defence called two cab drivers who testified that a cabbie would not take any particular notice of a client, certainly not enough to describe him uh, days later. Had the defence rested at this point, followed by a good closing speech by Abinger, then it is tempting to think that Steeny would have been acquitted, especially as the trial judge, Justice Darling, who was one of the great judges, made it clear in his summation that he did not believe the prosecution had proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. But it was now that the floor collapsed under the defence. Firstly, there was the obvious and also unnecessary lies of the Brodsky sisters in giving Steinle a false alibi for earlier on New Year's Eve. An alibi he did not actually need. But worse was to follow. During his cross-ignation of Nettie Deitch, Abinger had accused her of running a brothel. Actually, she did. But this was an attack on the character of a witness and under the 1998 Criminal Amendment Act, any attack on the character of a witness meant that the prosecution could attack the accused character. This meant that Muir could drag out Morrison's criminal record and lay it out before the jury. And this was precisely what he did when Morrison went into the witness box. I would explain here, today, of course, uh, you can do that anyway, uh, as long as the judge agrees uh, in advance. But then you couldn't. You could only uh, attack, bring out somebody's uh, character, like um, whether they had criminal convictions, if they... Uh, as, a, as attack the character of a um, uh, of a prosecution witness. Fenton Bresler, QC, in writing about the case, says the effect on the jury was appalling. You could see it in their faces, and it was at this point, in arguing in vain that Muir should not be allowed to raise Morrison's convictions, that Abinger went overboard and insulted the jury as already described. In the end, the jury were out for just 35 minutes before finding Morrison guilty. Steeny was sentenced to death, but Home Secretary Winston Churchill was not entirely convinced about Morrison's guilt, um, amongst other factors. He spoke of what he described as hard riding by the prosecution and reprieved him. But it was to make no real difference. Morrison petitioned for the original death sentence to be reinstated. And when it was turned down, he embarked on a series of hunger strikes in support of his innocence. On January the 24th, 1921, his body worn out by his current uh, hunger strike, he died. He remains the only person in our history to starve himself to death to protest his innocence. Was he innocent? Well... I don't think that a guilty man would go to that extreme. And the evidence was certainly not conclusive. A point which struck me with some force was the statement which Morrison made to the police on January 8th after he was arrested. It was genuinely a voluntary statement. And what is significant about it is that Morrison seems to believe that he has been arrested in connection with the Houndsditch murders. There is no consciousness of guilt when, when it comes to Beron. And this is a crucial point in assessing his guilt or innocence. But if Steenie Morrison was not guilty, then who did kill Leon Beron? Strictly in terms of assessing Steenie's culpability, it is not necessary to answer that question. But because I believe it is one of the great East End murder mysteries, I'm going to give my opinion. In giving it, I should state very clearly that Don Rumbelow, the leading expert on the Houndsditch murders, does not agree with me uh, when I put forward the theory that Beron was murdered by the Houndsditch assassins. 
The Umbaron was a man of mystery. In my book, I call him a half-lit face in the darkness. He was a squat, dingy little man. Allegedly, he derived his income from renting out his, his slum properties, but his income in, in rent, in total, was in, a mere 50 pence a week uh, in today's money. He was originally from Gawolki in Poland. In 1864, his father uprooted the family to France, where Leon grew up to be a locksmith. A frequenter of brothels and prostitutes, he contracted syphilis, with which he infected his wife, Adele. She subsequently died of general paralysis of the insane brought on by syphilis. Shortly before his own death, Leon was observed to be walking with a swinging gait, a sign of locomotor ataxy, which is brought on by syphilis. Baron, his father Max, and his brothers Solomon and David decamped to London from France in 1894. It was rumoured that on arrival in Britain, Leon had with him the then prodigious sum of £26,000, a sum well in excess of £1 million in today's values, and that he was the representative of a gang of international criminals. This may be doubted, but cannot be entirely discounted, because one theory about his death is that it was a gangland hit. How he actually made his living in London is actually no secret. He was a fence. But was he something else too? An informer. In the weeks following the Houndsditch murders, the police gradually hunted down the members of the Liesma group. Gardstein's body was discovered the following morning. Spars and Sokolov died at Sydney Street and Peters was in custody along with six others. Ossip Federoff, Max Hoffman, Yorka Duboff, John Rosen and the Liesma's two female members, Luba Milstein and Nina Vasileva. Others like Max Smoller, Peter Pietko, he has gone down in history as Peter the Painter, and the original leaders of the group, Jan Fogel and Evan Vanovich, in hiding in Essex since the Tottenham outrage, succeeded in remaining at large. None of those arrested were ever convicted of the Houndsditch murders. Federoff, Hoffman and Milstein were discharged during the magistrates' hearings. Peters, Duboff and Rosen were acquitted of all charges at their trial. Peters and Duboff at the judge's direction. Only Vasileva was, uh, was convicted on a conspiracy charge and received two years. She appealed, an appeal heard by the Lord Chief Justice, uh, no less. They don't turn out the Lord Chief Justice normally for a, an appeal of that magnitude, um, who quashed his con uh, conviction on the unbelievable grounds under the circumstances that she might not have known what the men were up to when she had been with them in exchange buildings. And there are fairies at the bottom of the garden as well. These outcomes were astonishing. The prosecutor, Archibald Bodkin, made mistake after mistake after mistake. Don Rumbelow catalogues them in the Houndsditch murders. On the bench, Justice Grantham dismissed the murder charges on the incredible ruling that, quote, we don't amplify charges of constructive murder these days. Uh, don't we? Ah. Constructive murder means that all are equally guilty whether they actually wielded the weapon or not, as long as they were acting in concert with each other. To give the lie to Justice Grantham, 14 years later, William Crosley and Edward Hegarty were jailed for life for the murder of a police officer. Constructive. Frederick um, Brown and William Gutteridge were hanged for the murder of P.C. William Kennedy, sorry, were hanged for the murder of P.C. Gutteridge in 1927. A little aside here, my dad used to take round his widow's police pension uh, to his widow. Um, Vincent Osler and William Happleby hanged in 1940 for the murder of another police officer, Roman Riddell and the big new Gower hanged for murder during a bank robbery in 1950. And, of course, the supreme example of constructive murder, 
Derek Bentley in ni- early in 1953. Today we call constructive murder joint enterprise. On this and other occasions, Grantham bent over backwards to assist the killers, kicking the law into touch to do so. Before the trial, Jacob Peters had told a fellow prisoner he would merely serve five or six years, a prediction which Don Rumbelow remarks seemed unduly optimistic for a man standing in the shadow of the gallows. In the end, the now conveniently dead Guardstein, Spars and Sokolov, were blamed for the Houndsditch shootings. There can be little doubt that the authorities wanted the whole matter swept under the carpet. Why? We need to go back to January 1909 and the Tottenham outreach, after which Fogel and Vanovich went into hiding. Liesma was effectively in disarray, but Peters arrived in London a few months later, and now the whole ethos changed. Special Branch reports now painted a picture of a handful of innocuous anarchists pursuing esoteric political beliefs in near isolation, with no links to any other organisation, no no meeting place, no nothing. Totally innocuous. At best, there was, n- there was no more than nine of them. The truth could not have been more different. Liesma was a group of the most virulent thugs that revolutionary politics had to offer. They're a sort of equivalent of Islamic State today. They were around 14 strong and were expropriators for Lenin and his Bolsheviks. So why were Special Branch and the newly created intelligence agencies, MI6 and MI5, so wide of the mark? Obviously, somebody was providing them with misleading information. Who? It is now that we get into the realms of speculation. Fact recedes to be replaced by theory because what I'm about to put forward cannot be backed up by evidence. But then, that generally is the way of things when the intelligence services and the secret state are involved. I think Jacob Peters was the man responsible for leading the security services astray. We know that Peters was arrested in Latvia after the 1905 uprising in Russia. He languished in prison for 18 months, during which time he had his fingernails torn out. Circa 1907, he was released. Why? My belief is that he agreed to spy on his fellow Bolsheviks. But this man, whom Lenin later described as brilliant and dependable, had no intention of doing this. Instead, he only posed as a double agent. I believe he was actually a triple agent, misleading the authorities. On arrival in London, he contacted the Russian embassy, who passed him on to the security services. For 18 months, it worked perfectly, and then Houndsditch happened. He was arrested on December the 22nd, 1910, just under a week after Houndsditch. What followed might be described as catch a bolshe by his toe. If he hollers, let him go. Good title for a book. If, if Peters had hollered after Houndsditch, then the credibility of the security services would have been destroyed, careers and reputations destroyed, and the public would have become aware that this gang of vicious thugs were in effect being allowed to rob and kill with virtual impunity by those responsible for protecting the public. The backlash might have, uh, caused by such a security scandal, might even have brought down the government and the British would have been exposed as a laughing stock abroad. So a deal was struck. Peters and his cohorts would have the serious charges set aside hence his confidence, about a few years. In the event, none of them went to prison except Vasileva, who was incarcerated for less than six weeks before her appeal, Frida. But where does Leon Barron fit into all this? Peters and co. carried out a number of successful robberies during 1909 and 1910. 
during which they stole gold and silver plate, jewellery and diamonds, for which they would have needed a fence. Leon Berum, ideal. He lived amongst them and was himself ostensibly a fugitive from Tsarist oppression. But if my surmise is correct, then Leon Berum was also a paid informer who reported to the Russian embassy on Russian immigrants in London. We know that the Russian authorities wanted to discredit the immigrants so that Britain stopped giving them shelter. It is entirely possible that the seeming double agent, Peters, was introduced to Beron and asked to liaise with him. Or Peters may have become aware that Beron was an informer in some other way. After Houndsditch, Leesma were finished in London, but they could still perform one last task and eliminate a real informer. For, for good measure, Beron also knew too much about them. Most of the revolutionaries were still free by New Year's Day, so they took Beron to Clapham Common on the pretext of saying that they had items to fence and there killed him, carving those S-shaped cuts into his cheeks to mark him down as a spy. Now, there are a lot of ifs and buts, could be's and maybes in this theorising. There is nothing concrete. But to me, it's logical inference leading to logical conclusion. And there, I'm going to leave it. Thank you for listening. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Bill. Terrific stuff. We're going to have a break now, and after the break, we're going to come back, and um, I'm sure you've got some questions that you want to ask. No questions are allowed. No questions. A um, couple of things I want to mention before you go on your break. Um, at the back of the room, when you came in, you picked up your magazine. There's actually two books for sale down there, uh, and the terrific books. I've got them both myself. Uh, one is called Crayology by John Bennett. Hindi, we are my lovely assistant holding it up at the back there. Crayology, terrific book uh, by John Bennett. And uh, also The Master Ghost Hunter by Richard Whittington Egan, which is also being held up, a terrific book. And they're both on sale here tonight. Um, the Master Ghost Hunter is £15, and the John Bennett book, Crayology, is just £20 for a hardback. But there's one other thing I would like to say, and I meant, I meant to mention this in my introduction. We're here in the, the Chamberlain Hotel, and they've been very, very good to us here. Um, and I would like to say, if ever you're in the area and you're looking for a good hotel, good place to stay, this is a terrific place. Great beer, terrific food, um, and you'll have a great time. So we're going to reconvene in uh, 15 minutes. That's quarter to nine, okay? And then we'll have some questions. Thank you very much. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. We hope you're suitably refreshed. And what we're going to do now is we're going to ask um, any questions that you have. But before we start, at the beginning of my introduction, I was talking about the books that Bill has acted. Just before we go to the questions, can you just go through the books that you've read, written on the subject? Okay. I published simultaneously, which was Jack the Ripper, Anatomy of a Myth, and The Killing of Leon Beron, both in 1995. And then I followed it with a, another book on miscarriages of justice called Wrongly Hanged. And then um, a book uh, called Boxing's Mr. President. And it's uh, sad to see that uh, Muhammad has passed away yeah. today because yeah. um, he features obviously very largely in it. Uh, then in 2009, I published um, Jack the Ripper Unmasked. And I do have a current manuscript, which has not been taken up by a publisher. Um, I don't know if uh, Robert's here tonight. No, I don't think he is. Uh, but Robert attempted to find a publisher uh, uh, last year. And um, uh, a couple of publishers were, uh, were very interested, but eventually decided not to go ahead. And um, it's about 23 cases in the 20th century on which I believe um, uh, people were wrongly convicted and hanged for murder. But, okay. Uh, 
Well, we look forward to that, Bill. Thanks. I hope to publish it myself one day. Okay, terrific. Thanks very much. Now, I'm sure you've got... Oh, before we go through the questions, at the back of the room, there are still three books left of Richard Whittington Egan's The Master Ghost Hunter. Great book, guys. £15. It's a terrific read. Okay, so let's go for the questions. Put your hand up if you've got a question, and then I'll come to you with a microphone. Lindsay. Do you know where Leon Barron is buried? Not specifically, no. Okay, that's fine. Another question down here from Stuart. Okay. I assume it would be the Jews Cemetery, though. Uh, thank you. Hello, Bill. Uh, thanks so Hello, much mate. for an yep. ex- excellent presentation. Um, I'm interested in the fact that Baron, you mentioned he was a property owner, uh, not rich, but fairly well off, probably. Um, he would, a jury would have been biased by their feelings towards uh, the guy being tried. Do you think, how were the juries in those days selected? Would Baron have had an influence on that? Uh, no, I don't think there was any uh, bias towards Baron. I think all the bias uh, was against Morrison through the incompetence of his counsel. And in fact, um, Justice Darling, when he came to do his summing up, he personally thought that Morrison was guilty. But he did his best. He did not think that the case had been proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And he was very concerned about the effect that uh, Abinger's behaviour was having on the jury uh, against his client, against Morrison. And so he... Uh, if you want to read an outstanding summation, an out, uh, a, a really fair uh, summation by a, a judge, then read that one, because in powerful, very striking phrases, he is telling the jury that they should acquit. And in fact, he mentions, hint, hint, the Scottish verdict of not proven. Uh, so basically, no. Um, but of course, juries in those days were all selected from middle-class people, middle, and, um, uh, and they were all male as well. OK, we've got another couple of questions here. Ed? Yep. Is it, OK. Bill, do you have the uh, slightest scintilla of evidence to connect Beron to any of the revolutionaries at all? Not any actual evidence, no. That has to be said. Uh, it's purely theorising. OK. Any other questions, guys? Just put your hands up if you've got a question. Behind me. Oh, sorry, there you go. Hi, Bill. It's slightly off the beaten track, but do you have any theories to what happened to Peter the Painter? Uh, no. Um, the, what seems to be the favourite is that he escaped to Australia and there lived the life of uh, anonymity in Australia. That does seem to be the favourite, but we honestly don't know what happened to him. He, in the film The Siege of Sydney Street, and in various articles on, Sydney, on the siege, uh, he plays uh, a, a major role in The Siege of Sydney Street, and he is depicted as being there and managing to escape... Uh, but the fact is that he was never at Sydney Street. Bill, I, re- I read somewhere quite a few years ago that he was actually he went back to Russia and was killed by the Tsarist secret police. Is that true? It's possible. It's possible. Um, Tsarist secret police. That would be unlikely um, that he that he would have uh, because uh, the, the Tsarist secret police, of course. Uh, was disbanded by the Bolsheviks. But uh, in the Bolshevik, um, when the Bolsheviks took over, um, they killed so many people, including many of their own people, that uh, there was just a bunch of uh, cack-brained psychopaths who hijacked the nation. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Anybody got any other questions? Just put your (coughs) hands up. Um, Bill, I've just got a a, a question. Um, He was... the, The sentence was initially death... 
but that was commuted to life imprisonment mm. by the, uh, the Home Secretary's William uh, uh, Churchill. What was the reason behind that? I'm reading that there's a bit of disquiet. People were unhappy with the verdict. Um, Churchill spoke of what he called hard riding by the prosecution. He wasn't entirely happy that the prosecution had been fair to, um, to Morrison. Uh, and that was not the only reason. He, there was a, a feeling that possibly um, Morrison uh, was, might have, there might have been a scintilla of doubt, which the Home Secretary, uh, according to conditions for reprieve, always reprieved when, uh, in theory anyway, when there was a scintilla of doubt about the verdict. Uh, in reality, many Home Secretaries ignored that completely. In fact, in one appalling case in 1938, the DPP told the Home Secretary, uh, that was Robert Hullhouse, that um, uh, the evidence, they said, was never strong. And in fact, the, one of the prosecuting counsels said that they shouldn't even proceed with it. And yet, um, uh, Hullhouse was actually hanged. The Home Secretary well, don't care. Wow. hanged him. And um, so, uh, in, in this case, Churchill deserves great credit for deciding that, um, uh, that, it, that Morrison might possibly have been innocent. There were other factors as well, because uh, he might, uh, if he was reprieved, uh, tell whom his accomplices were, because nobody, not the prosecution or the police, ever thought that Morrison had done the, the crime uh, alone. That was, everybody knew that there had been accomplices. Uh, that was, they were certain of that. And that's another reason why Churchill uh, reprieved him. And then there was a famous statement by a Mrs. Ryder, who was the wife of either the Daily Mail or Daily Expresses. Uh, it's sort of same difference anyway. Um, uh, Paris uh, office, the, the, the editor of their Paris office, who overheard some people talking on a tram um, about, um, uh, and they were suggesting that Beron had been murdered by, um, uh, by uh, an in some international gangsters. And, uh, they, the, the, and they were saying, well, is there anything we can do uh, about Morrison uh, to, to, uh, because he wasn't guilty? And they then said, well, not really, not without uncovering ourselves. And um, she made a statement which was transmitted to Churchill um, in which um, uh, she mentioned names which these two uh, guys had, had banded about. And uh, they turned out, some of the names turned out to be people who were international criminals, so... Uh, that also may, we can't know for sure, but that may have uh, played a part in the reprieve. But certainly there were more than one reasons for the reprieve. And the, the other question I've got is about the actual marks on the cheek, which seem to say spy in, in, in Russian or, or, or Polish. There is, there is a, a point of view put forward to say that, that those cuts on the cheek were caused when he was dragged through the bushes and dumped on the bushes, and that was just... That was just from there. Would you, no, you're not, you're not going for that. No, this was raised at the trial and the medical people, I think it was the, the pathologist, uh, Freiberger, and the uh, divisional surgeon, Needham, said absolutely not. They were deliberate cuts with a knife. OK, so if there's no more questions... Guys, thank you so much for coming. We hope you've had a good evening. The next meet will be in two months' time. We hope to see you all then. Thank you and good night. Thanks, Bill. Well done. And that was William Beadle at the Whitechapel Society 1888 spy monthly meeting at the Chamberlain Hotel in London. Big thanks go out to Steve Ratty for his excellent job recording these talks for our podcast listeners, as well as to the guest speaker, Mr. William Beadle, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making this all possible. A list of Bill Beadle's books, including the one that was the subject of this talk, can be found on his author's page at Amazon.com. 
And I even saw that there were some signed copies available at Loretta Lay Books at laybooks.com. So be sure to check those out. For more information on the Whitechapel Society, please visit their webpage at whitechapelsociety.com, where you can find information on membership, a schedule of their meetings, guest speakers, books, and subscription options for their Journal of the Whitechapel Society 1888. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org and available there as well as in the iTunes Music Store where you'll be able to find dozens of our roundtable podcasts and conference talks free to stream or download. I do hope you enjoyed this program as much as I did and thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.